TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Welcome to Spill It. Billet is true stories told in front of a live audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? This is Josh Campbell in Memphis, Tennessee, and you are listening to the Spillet Podcast. This story is from a center stage of event held on November 4th, 2016 at America. And the theme for the night was the dark side. This story is told by Sean Mosley and is titled Funerals. Growing up, um, ever since I was a little kid, I've always had this thing about planning my own funeral. Not really like planning an actual funeral or whatever. It's more like, you know, when I would get in trouble and my mom would like punish me and make you go to your room and think about what you did. You know, I would sit there and fantasize about if I was dead, she would be so upset. <laughs> She'd be so sad. And I could see her now. I wish I wouldn't have punished him and things like that. And my sisters and brothers, they get on my nerve. And you wouldn't be treating me like this if I was dead. <laughs> and... There was just, for me, it was just something about uh, death that just seemed like, you know, all of your flaws and all of your rough edges, they got kind of smoothed over and all of the good things, they got pushed up and, you know, and people really, truly miss you because you're gone. And... That's the thing that I I fantasized about a lot of times. And even I found that even in adulthood that I still kind of did that a little bit, not necessarily with, you know, my sisters and brothers. But then it moved on to like businesses and things like that. Bill collectors fantasize about being dead. You can collect this money over my dead body. (laughs) Uh, and, and stuff like that, you know, and um, and when I get down on myself and that happens sometimes, you know, these fantasies, sometimes they go into to overdrive. And one day my wife, she recently bought a new car and I'm driving the new car. I'm pulling it out of the driveway, something I've done like a thousand times and I'm turning the wheel and I hear the most horrible scratching, crunching sound and I get out of the car and I see that I rubbed like the back end of the car up against like the corner of the mailbox and it just dug in that paint job like really, really good. And I'm just looking at it like, 
you know, I don't have anybody to blame but me. My wife, she didn't even say anything. She was just like, hey, you did it, buddy. <laughs> and you're going to have to pay for it. And I know this. And eventually I end up, you know, taking it to the body shop. And I'm having these fantasies about telling the insurance company you would get this deductible over my dead body. <laughs> and... The rental car place, they come and pick me up, and they're supposed to put me in a rental car, and they try to give me this little small clown car. My wife's car was an SUV, and they're giving me this clown car, and I'm thinking to myself, you guys would not be treating me like this if I was dead, <laughs> which the irony is not lost on me, <laughs> but... And I get in the rental car, and I'm driving back home. I had to take off work early to do this, and I planned on helping uh, some of my friends to move that day. I really, really, really hate moving. Like, moving is, like, one of the worst things that you have to do in your life or whatever. And, but the thing that I believe about moving is, is that when you move, you really find out who your friends are, unless you have money to pay somebody to help you move. But you really find out who your real friends are because they'll help you move. And so I like helping people move because, you know, it means that I'm your real friend. And if I die, that means you are obligated to show up at my funeral <laughs> and say something nice about me. And while I'm getting ready to go and help these friends move, uh, I get this text message from my cousin. His name is Carl, and he lives in Detroit. And my cousin Carl, he's like, uh, he's like the Fox News of the family. Uh, he never delivers news that you want to hear, and you may need a fact checker <laughs> on the news that he gives you. And I open up the text because he never texts. He usually always calls whenever he calls. And the text says, Akil killed himself last night. And I'm looking at it like, what? This is the most odd text message to get. And it's not really registering with me I'm thinking like maybe he's playing what's going on I text him back what question mark explanation point but he never texts me back and so I start googling it's my cousin his name's Akil A-Q-E-E-L type that into Google and you know some things pop up this is my cousin on my mom's side. We grew up together. He's only a month older than me. And we spent summers together. But other than that, I really didn't know any more about him because, you know, you get older, you get, you have families, you move away, you don't stay in touch. I just remember him as a kid, you know, he kind of stuttered a little bit and that was it's about it for the extent of my memory. And so I'm Googling, I'm trying to find out like what's going on and things are popping up. Like, you know, 
He did some time in jail. Okay. He's about 6'1". Okay. And this was his birthday. Okay. His middle name is Jihad. I don't know why his mom did that. <laughs> did not foresee 9-11 when she named him that. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. There's like no information. I, I finally just called my cousin in Detroit like, yo, man, what's what's going on? What happened? And he starts to tell me like, you know, Akil, you know, he moved to Alabama not that long ago. His dad is down there in Montgomery and he moved down there and he has his wife and, and kids and stuff. And I didn't even know like he had a wife and kids and all that. And they moved down there and he started, my cousin started talking about the wife. Like, you know, I told him like he should have like divorced her or whatever, because they were always in fights. And I'm like, okay. And he was saying, then he told me that they were in a fight the night before. And I don't, Akil, he just got a gun and, he shot his wife and then shot her in the belly and she was eight months pregnant. And then he went downstairs and he shot himself. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. And then I'm, I'm like, well, when, when is the, the funeral and stuff like that? And he said, well, we don't, we don't know when the funeral is going to be. And I start calling other family members to find out, and should I even go to the funeral? On our side of the family, I'm probably the closest one from Memphis to Montgomery, and everybody else is in Detroit. And I'm talking to some of my other family members. They're like, nah, I ain't going. That's too far. And, you know, he he tried to kill his wife and, and kid. And then he killed himself. What, what are we going to do? Are we going to go there and talk about how, how good of a person he is? I was like, oh, my family's kind of rough. They, they don't pull no punches. <laughs> um, and so I'm just wrestling with that, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I get a, a message from Akil's sister saying that she was going to try to come down for the funeral and, like, rent a bus a van or something like that to bring like all his nieces and nephews and, and things like that down there. And I'm just saying, okay, well just let me know when it is and come to find out that he, they can't have the funeral because even though he did shoot his wife and shoot her in the belly, the, the baby survived with no problem. just a month early and his wife was in a coma and since she didn't die they're they're hoping that she's going to survive but she has the right to bury him since she is his wife and so they can't have a funeral until she comes out and says and makes arrangements or gives the rights to somebody else and so I don't know. I just keep Googling every day or every other day. And 
waiting for a message and trying to figure out whether I'm actually going to go or not. And if I do go, what what am I going to say? I remember he stuttered, things like that. And so I haven't been having a lot of funeral fantasies lately. It just came to my mind that, you know, once you're gone, you're really not in control of your own narrative anymore. It's in somebody else's hands. And so I just made up my mind that I'm just going to continue to try to be the best dad, the best friend, the best husband that I can be so that one day, hopefully a long time from now, that that when I'm actually gone, somebody will miss me when I'm gone. Thank you. This is Sean Mosley in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on November 4th, 2016 at America. And the theme for the night was the dark side. This story is told by Declan Dealey. And the title of the story is Where It Enters You. So I'm going to start my story with a... uh figurative and uh, literal awakening. I, um, I'm unconscious and I am slowly like surfacing into consciousness and I'm aware of an excruciating pain in my dick. And I'm not really sure what's going on because I don't recall having doing anything that would like trigger that kind of response. And uh, I opened my eyes into, like, some kind of retina-searing halogens. Um, And it's like I'm in the worst Japanese tentacle porn anime you've ever seen. There's just shit connected to me everywhere. Um, And I realized, like, oh, I'm in uh, the ICU uh, because I tried to kill myself the night before. And so I've got the oxygen and the catheter and all the different heart monitor nodes going on, which are going to be a bitch to get off because I'm allergic to the adhesive, and so I get these really gnarly, like, welts. Um, But it's not my first time being in the ICU, not even my first time being in that exact uh, room in the ICU, uh, because this is my uh, fifth suicide attempt at this point. And I... um, I wasn't one of those teenagers who was making like kind of performative uh, cry for help sort of suicide attempts where you take like two Tylenol and then you call 911 and you hope that like your ex finds out, you know, and feels really bad about dumping you. Um, these were legitimate attempts to like get the fuck up off this planet. And um, I, had so many conversations with my mom later where she talked about the doctors laying out the options of like, you know, what would be happening when I woke up, if I woke up about my kidney functioning and liver functioning. And, you know, if I'd have to like relearn how to talk. Um, and, uh, cause I was, I was overdosing 
usually like on my, uh, psych meds. And I always just, you know, kind of emerged unscathed for whatever reason. Um, a little bit of like a medical mystery there. And, um, so I'm sitting there in the ICU and I'm thinking about the inevitable process of getting, uh, evaluated and then sent off to like another mental facility. And I decide that, um, I'm really going to try and make like a solid effort this time. (laughs) Um, I'm going to really try and work the program because for whatever reason, uh, I'm not very good at this whole suicide thing. It's not working out. And, um, Thankfully, this time when they do the evaluation, they wait for all the drugs to wear off. It's a real problem if they evaluate you while you're actively hallucinating from your overdose because they think your symptoms are a lot more severe than they actually are, and you spend like a week on the really scary wing with all the like child molesters and rapists and murderers and shit, and you're like, I'm just a depressed kid from Carterville. I don't belong here. Um, Not that I can't hang. I mean, like I spent some time there, and it was fine. They're just... It's not my people. Um, And so I end up going, this this time uh, I was going to Lakeside. I was like, cool, like been there, fine. Um, And and I've decided that I'm going to kind of like keep my head down and really focus on uh, myself and my own recovery process because uh, having been through these treatment cycles so many times before I've gotten like pretty good at therapy. Um, especially group therapy, uh, cause talking about oneself is not super fun. And so I was pretty good at like deflecting or like getting other people engaged in the conversation. Um, specifically I remember like this one time, uh, I believe it was my second time through, uh, I was 15 and we were in what's called a multi-family group session, uh, which is a really cost-effective way for the facility to try and prove to the parents that they're not the only ones with super fucked up kids and also to let the kids know they're not the only ones with super fucked up parents. And so it'd be a room like half this size, but with the same amount of people in it. And, um, you're basically just checking in and the therapist is like, uh, getting, uh, kind of like status reports, just checking on everybody's progress. And it's not really the venue for like a deep dive. You're not supposed to be like resolving all your deep seated trauma and shit. You know, you're just like, yes, they are taking their meds and like, no, they're not cutting themselves. Um, but there's this one family, uh, as a mom and a dad and two daughters and they were, hung up on this very mundane conflict about the fact that they had to take one of the daughter's uh, doors off the hinges because uh, she was a pretty uh, intense cutter, and, uh, and that was like a very common tactic they would use. Um, also, it's supposed to help motivate the kid to like isolate less. Um, and they are going around and around and around, and they weren't really making any headway on like the core conflict um, and so finally I interjected cause the therapist was just like sitting on their ass. They were greener than duck shit. Like one year out of their grad program, I had no idea what they were doing and we could all smell the fear on them. 
Um, and so, yeah, I finally stepped in and I was just, I thought very like casually explaining that, um, that it's not the punishment itself. That's like, you know, so upsetting to Emily. It's the fact that like, you know, Emily's sister is, uh, kind of like, uh, she would be like the protagonist, like in any kind of media experience you were watching. She was like tall and beautiful and thin and neurologically typical and probably had never had anal. And <laughs> Emily was like short and kind of chubby and really into my chemical romance. And um, like the month before, I had opened up her arm from like here to here. Um, and so I was just like, look, whenever you impose any kind of asymmetrical uh, punishment here, you're just reinforcing all of these like harmful narratives that Emily's internalized about her worth and like her worthiness of receiving love. And it might be true because if I had these two kids, like I would like one of them a whole lot more than the other one, but you can't do that when you're a parent. You know, you need to like camouflage it a little more successfully. Um, and that's what I said. And everyone was kind of like, oh, yeah, cool. And then we moved on. Um, but at the end of the session, Emily and her parents came up to me, and they thanked me and said I'd made a big difference. And I was like, oh, maybe all this rehab is paying off. Um, but I was trying to avoid another Emily situation this time through uh, the facility because those relationships that you form inside are really uh, volatile and intense, you know, because all of your illusions about yourself and your place in the world are kind of stripped away and all you're left with is like this really miserable, despicable truth about all of your cowardice and failures. Um, and it's a uniquely horrible experience getting to know someone that well. And also being known that well. And we kind of naturally uh, break off after you're discharged. You know, like you get really close to people because, you know, like, oh, you know, like they were molested or they were drunk driving and killed someone. And you form that really intense bond. And then once you get out, you're like, that sucks to know that about you and also to have those things known about me. So maybe like talk to you never. Um, and I was trying to not have that kind of thing go down because inevitably uh, people started to kind of put uh, some sort of expectation on me for like managing their well-being. Um, they thought I had some kind of answers that I didn't actually have. And so this trip through, I'm like being pretty standoffish, I'm not bothering to come out this time because it's like, so exhausting, especially in the South. Um, and I'm doing a pretty good job. And then I meet this kid, Chase, um, who uh, was um, an alcoholic. He was the same age as me, and we had some like sort of acquaintances in common. Um, and he looks like, he also kind of looks like a protagonist. He also looks like the kind of person who might ostensibly hate crime, somebody like me, if we were in like a Midwestern town. Um, and he, you know, he's like 
jockey and actually in a frat and his favorite book is like unironically fight club <laughs> and um this is the kind of person that i would think i would not have anything in common with uh but we were roommates and so and you know we get to talking because there's not a whole lot else to do besides talk um and i got to know those kinds of things about him that we all kind of assume are like unique and terrible and heartbreaking to our experience on this earth, but are actually kind of universal and terrible and heartbreaking. Um, and despite my best efforts, I realized I was doing that thing where I was becoming someone's like, you know how they, they have service dogs. I feel like, every person has that one like service gay in their friend group who uh, is like the emotionally like competent one. I mean, um, and I knew, and I saw that happening and I was so preoccupied with my own idea of what I thought recovery had to look like that I had to avoid negativity at all costs. And I had to like limit my, you know, kind of books I was reading to and the kind of, or reading and kind of music I was listening to. Um, that was really, uh, wary of engaging like tr truly with somebody. Um, cause I was like, I got my own shit and there's like a lot of it and I don't want to deal with your shit. Um, and so when I got discharged, you know, eventually we did kind of drift apart, but we would talk on the phone occasionally check in and, you know, he would have some kind of conflict with like his girlfriend or his parents about his career aspirations and I was like yeah you know a sympathetic ear um and it's it's weird because I understood at some point that we were really really good friends and he was really loyal and thoughtful in like his own like emotionally handicapped way um and I realized that I was coming to kind of depend a little bit on like fulfilling that role in a way. Like it helped me feel like I had my own shit together to help him have his shit together. Um, but I didn't, uh, I knew that it wasn't necessarily productive because the whole point of um, the way that like recovery cohorts are set up is so that people at the same level of uh progress when you're super vulnerable that you're not forming super uh, intense attachments with each other people will, like hook up in rehab all the time which i don't understand because it's like a really boner killing environment <laughs> and you know all this horrible shit about this person and the whole point of a relationship is that you're like hiding all that horrible shit about you <laughs> And then you like dole it out slowly after they're so involved that they can't run away. Um, it's our 10 year anniversary in February. What's up, babe? Um, and so at this point, yeah, we've probably been out for like six months. And I realize there's been a uh, month and a half period where Chase hasn't talked to me. And I'm like kind of relieved. I'm like, cool. You know, he's. Uh, on his own two feet and figuring it out and I'm doing really well. Um, and then I get a Facebook message out of the blue and this is before Facebook would filter 
your messages coming from non-friends. Does anybody remember the glory days? Because um, I wasn't friends with him on Facebook. Um, and he let me know, like, surprise, he hasn't actually been, you know, neglecting to talk to me because his life was so together. He was actually inside again because he'd had a suicide attempt. And I was like, dude, that's my thing. Like, you're just an alcoholic from Ole Miss. Figure out your brand. Um, And we uh, scheduled another fucking, like, phone call or whatever, therapy sesh. Um, And it... I was busy with work at the time and helping some friends with some like film projects. Um, and so the, the date that we were scheduled to talk to each other came and, um, and I missed his call and I could have, I mean, it was like a little ambiguous over whether or not I could have made time for it. I probably could have asked everyone to like, you know, give me an hour and it would have been fine. Um, but I also, you know, subconsciously or whatever on some level didn't want to re-engage. And, um, and he, he actually died that night. Um, and it probably sounds really narcissistic, uh, and egocentric to say that, like, I'm very certain that if I'd been able to talk to him, he would have made it home. But that is just something that I know to be true. Um, because I I knew him well enough that I could have, you know, talked him off that proverbial ledge. Um, I was I was so preoccupied with avoiding the darkness um in that sense of those you know terrible truths that you have to confront about yourself i th- i thought that by preoccupying myself with other things or by avoiding those harmful truths i was uh protecting myself and also being responsible you know to other people um but what i've what I've realized is that the darkness is not like just an accessory that I get to throw on um, when I'm feeling cute. It is uh, something that is like imminent and inevitable about life, you know, like terrible, horrible shit happens and your experiences prepare you for certain things. And uh, even if you're not necessarily a religious person, person. Um, I do feel like my life has been shaped in such a peculiar way that I'm uniquely equipped to help people struggling with this issue because I've just had like a lot of fucking practice at it. Um, and, and so now, um, I'm at the Memphis crisis center where I answer those phone calls for people every day. Um, and when I get some fucking, you know, mouthy 15-year-old from Biloxi, Mississippi telling me, like, oh, I can't possibly understand what they're going through, I can be like, look, motherfucker, 
I know exactly what you're going through. And it is horrible. And I can't promise that it's going to get better because maybe it won't. Maybe it'll get worse, but it'll get different because you don't really get to hold on to wherever you are. You know, life continues and it'll drag you all over the goddamn place. All that I ask is that you give me another 24 hours. You know, you can always just kill yourself later. And that way it's not on my conscience, you know. Uh, And then the next day they call back. And maybe the next day, and eventually I'm like, hey, we've made a week. Maybe a week turns into a month. And then maybe a month turns into six months. And before you know it, it's like you're somewhere else, you know. Hell's just a place. You don't have to stay there. And um, there's this uh, quote that I found really helpful by uh, Rumi, who was a 13th century Sufi mystic. It's the kind of quote that uh, you see on like your local yoga instructor's Pinterest page. (laughs) Um, And it kind of goes like this, that the wound is the place where the light enters you. And it's pretty good. It's fine. Um, But I think that is kind of like the warp thinking I had going on at the time that the light was something separate from my darkness or that they didn't complement each other in order to like inform my whole experience. Um, And so my own quote is that like the darkness is like this suspension bridge of like flayed scar tissue that you can like hurl across the unknowable void of experience at another person who's also suffering. And then if they grab it, you can like drag their ass out of there. You're welcome. Um, Basically because my experiences like in those very specific places um, have prepared me to help people, you know, and it sucks that Chase has to be like the girlfriend who gets murdered in my superhero origin story, but we kind of all are that to other people sometimes, you know, Um, and that now I have these tools and this experience to help other people. And that is a gift that the darkness gave me. Thank you. This is Josh Campbell in Memphis, Tennessee, and you are listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on November 4th, 2016 at America. And the theme for the night was the dark side. This story is told by Paul Arnett and is titled Chivalrous Defense. We had levels um, in terms of messages when it came to beepers, my wife and I. Nine meant <clears throat> call me as soon as you can. Nine one mean call me sooner than that. Nine one one meant why aren't we talking already? I was with some of my boys and we were playing basketball. It was early on a Saturday morning and um, we had gone to play ball at this particular church like between five and six o'clock. I believe this particular morning we went around six. Um, uh, they, they had a league that started around 10 o'clock, so we would play a few hours before then. So 
me and some of my boys, we're playing ball, and uh, one of my boys noticed my beeper went off, and he was like, yo, man, you know, your beeper's going off. I was like, you know, check it out. Give, give me the code. Tell me what's happening. And he says, it says 991111-01. 01 is my wife. 991111. That was an unknown code. The other code that I told you about, those three codes, I knew, but nine, nine, one. So I go and I pick up the payphone and I call her and I say, hey, what's going on? She says, he's here. I said, who's here? She says, he's here. He's out front. I knew exactly who she was talking about. A week prior to this, my wife had been coming from the grocery store and she had one of those old lady carts. You know what I'm talking about? Those little, you know what I'm talking about? She had one of those old lady cars. She's walking across the uh, uh, parking lot. Dude speaks to her. She speaks back. Her norm is to speak back, and it's all good. But then you'll have those guys that cross the line and start talking about, hey, baby, can I pick you up? Can I take you home? Blah, blah, whatever. And she was cool with him and tried, you know, tried to turn him down nice, but he was not going. So immediately it escalated. Well, bitch, blah, blah, blah. Well, bitch, I can fuck, blah, blah, blah. He's just cussing. So she's still trying to be cool with him. She's only two blocks from the house. I'm home, and I'm asleep. I'm, 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 I'm home rather than, and I'm, I'm uh, watching the game and I fell asleep a little bit. So as I'm nodding, I hear, I hear shrieks and I'm like, man, some, somebody's screaming. And, and then I hear, damn, whoever it is is screaming, they're screaming my name. Oh my God, that's my wife. She's screaming. She's screaming my name. So I come outside and I come outside on the porch and I see her running. She has this little old lady's cart and she's running and she drops the cart and she comes up the stairs because there are stairs from the porch to a little walkway. There are stairs from the walk from the you know sidewalk, and we meet up right there. And she's crying. She's dropped her groceries or whatever. So two quick things. First of all, my wife does not run. <laughs> Secondly, when my wife goes to the grocery store, it is a pilgrimage. <laughs> she loves the grocery store. She does not drop groceries. (laughs) If groceries are dropped and she's running, there's a problem. And she was shrieking again. There's a problem. I'm like, what's happening? So we meet right there. And she says, this dude chasing me. She gives gives me this whole story of this guy who cursed me out. The whole thing I just told you. She goes through this thing. I see a guy in a red truck, a little pickup truck, turned the street right before us, the block right before us. I don't pay attention to him, though I see him turn, so, but I'm, my concern is her. And I, I get the story from her. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, this was just a jackass, and he's done what he's going to do. He's going to go on about his business. Um, that was the first time. But the day that she called me with that 99111, I was playing basketball, so I left. I, I ran right out. I'm playing basketball with five or six of my boys. I leave right out. I don't tell them anything. My brother is there. Three or four of the cats who I go to church with who are my best friends, another co-worker of mine. So I'm five or six guys deep. I jump in the car. I'm about 15 minutes away from my house, between 12 and 15 minutes away. And I'm bawling through the streets of Southern Maryland, headed to Northeast D.C. I'm going through stop signs and red lights. I'm just bawling. And about the third light I go through, second or third light, I look in my rearview mirror and I see my boys are behind me. I ain't told them nothing. 
I just moved and they moved with me. And I saw them moving in and out of traffic just like I was. I was dancing. I was changing lanes. I was going through and I was catching every light and I was just bawling through. And I saw them coming behind me. One of my boys, Luke, had a Datsun B210. It was the raggedest car you ever want to see. It didn't have no kind of alignment to it. It shook like all to be damned. And when it shook all to be damned, my boy Luke would ride with one hand out there like he was cool as hell. I'm not lying to you. He would do like that. And he'd get out and he'd be talking. Yeah, I just came from so and so and so. All these cats were coming behind me. When I got to my house, I didn't park my car, I just got out. My wife wouldn't go in the house. It was about 7 a.m. by then. She wouldn't go in the house, and she was upset. She was, she was beside herself, and she said, he went that way. When I got out of the car, I told my boys, he went that way. They all shot out and went that way. Now, as they went that way, not one of them asked what he looked like, what he was driving, or nothing. They just went that way and so I'm sitting there I'm holding my wife now my brother my older brother was the only one didn't go anywhere he had a baseball bat he was just standing out in the street he just had a baseball bat ready to go down ready whatever the hell was going to happen he was ready to throw down um, as I'm holding her I'm, I'm you know I'm talking to her trying to calm her down or what have you we go in the house or whatever uh, and, and that day you know things just die down or whatever so a day uh, uh, this was a Saturday the Monday after that I go to work same thing. She calls me up. Baby, he's here. He's across the way. D.C. has row houses. And um, right across the street was a, a, our row houses. There, were, there was no break. There was an alley behind us. But across the street, there's a break. And this is where this fool kept parking. And he was just watching my wife. She, he, we were directly across from here. So she would call me at work. And there's nothing I could do right then and there. But, you know, call the police or what have you. So after this third time, she got a piece of his license plate. So I go to the police station and make this report you know and as i'm talking to this cop i'm pissed off i'm upset i go from being angry to 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 being passionate to making threats i go through the whole gamut while i'm talking to him and dude is real cool with me he was like yo man i understand if my family was in this position i would be angry just like you i'd feel just like you it was you know it was all good now those cats who were at the basketball game with me and some other brothers from the church I attended at the time, they decided to help me out. I was working morning shift, and so they would come by my house. Some of these guys were entrepreneurs. Some of them um, were working various shifts, midnight, different. So, but they would come by my house every few hours, and they would either stop by. My wife was an excellent, is an excellent cook, so they might be, she might cook something, and they'd stop by, get a sandwich or what have you. They'd call me from the house. Yo, man, I just stopped by, check on the missus, everything is good. They was just stopping by at interval, integral t- periods of time you dig me um and this went on for a few weeks but still they weren't able to find anybody and every once in a while at once or twice a week she would call me he's here okay across the road and we still couldn't catch him well around six weeks into this one of the brothers from the church who came came over to my house he came over to my house around 10 o'clock and um he came over. That was the that was the early news in D.C. You know, the news comes on 10 o'clock here. That's East Coast. So this was the early news. I was peeping the little news, and he came to my door and he told me, come outside for a minute. I walked outside. He said, um, do you need my help with your situation? I knew what he was asking me, but I needed him to be clear with me. I needed him to be plain with me. I needed him to be simple with me. I said, what you talking about? He got plain. He got clear. He got simple. He said, do you need my help with your situation. I said, yeah, I I need your help. His brother's name was Malik. Malik was a member of our church, but he was separate. 
our church had various little groups. We had, you know, people who had been to church all our lives. We had guys who were new to church. We had some rehab guys. We had guys of different ages or whatever. We were all together, but there were these little, you know, little groups. You feel me? You got some 20-year-olds over here versus some 40-year-olds over here. You got the married ones over here. You got the, 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 the single ones over here. But we were all cool. But Malik kind of moved in between us. He was not a group member of any group. He wore fatigues all the damn time. He had on camouflage. I don't give a damn what day it was, what time of day it was. He had on camouflage. He had pants. He had shorts. He had shirt. He had jacket. He had scarf. He had hat. He had gloves. He was camouflaged. He's probably right here. But he had... He would... So six or eight weeks into it, he came over my house... At that 10 o'clock at night and said, uh, do you need help with your situation? Do you need my help with your situation? I said, yeah. Um, For weeks it went on. I kept getting those phone calls at work. I didn't go anywhere else. I would play ball. Uh, I had different things that were social life. But after this, I did nothing but go to work and come back home. This went on for about six or seven months, and all the time, man, she would buzz me up, and it was like, I didn't have my own car. I borrowed a friend of mine's car, so, you know, I had to borrow this car to go home, and it was just like, in the in, in, in this time period, I'm also moving. I'm moving from D.C., coming to Memphis, so our lives are chaotic right then. I had resigned my job, and then it found out that I couldn't move home when I wanted to, so I resigned that job, had to find another job, and you know, just it was chaos, you know. Life was chaotic. About three months after Malik came to my porch that morning, he came back to my house. This time it was after 11 o'clock, about 11.15, and he knocked on my door and he said, I got him. I didn't say nothing to my wife. I just walked out the house. It's 11.15, 11.20 at night. I just walked out and I closed the door. He says... When he first actually came to me, he said to me, do you want me to handle this or do you want to be a part of it? And I told him, I got to lay hands on him. He has shaken my foundation. I got to lay hands on him. So, yeah, I want to be a part of this. So this night when he came to me, he said, I got him. I walked out the door. I just walked out the house. I closed the door. My wife wasn't feeling well. She was laying down. We had a small house. So she heard me when I walked outside. It's 11 o'clock at night. What the fuck are you doing? I said, where is he? He said, he's two blocks away. Malik is a little shorter than I am, and um, I have a long stride when I walk. My natural stride is just a long stride. And then I'm, I'm pissed off. I got shit is going in my head. And at this time, I'm, I'm filled with rage. I'm, I'm angry. I'm ready to whoop ass. And at the same time, I'm fearful because I don't know what's about to happen. I have stepped outside of myself. I am This dude has shaken my core. He's shaken my foundation. My wife has been in my home since she was 19. She was a child. And she's been in my care. So I'm walking and Malik is walking beside me. I'm taking long strides and (laughs) you could hear. Because his his little short ass had to double time to keep up with me. I was two blocks, so we were two blocks away. He said, he ain't going nowhere. Start, calm down. He ain't going nowhere. The whole time he's talking to me, but I'm somewhere else, man. I got to get to this motherfucker. 
I get to the corner and he's he's two he's two the second car off the corner and he's changing his tire. He has the old school jack, you know, with the um the um crowbar and the one you you feel me, you know. So he was working that thing and when I hit the corner I didn't know exactly where he was, but because like I'm saying, Malik is talking to me or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm rolling now. And when I turn the corner, there he is, and he sees me. And in one second, he's pumping, and he sees me, and he knows, oh, shit. And he pulls that crowbar out, but he pulls it out, and he swings back like this. He left his whole self open, and I lit into him. I lit into him. I gave him everything I had, and he hit the ground. The crowbar hit the ground, and I sat on him, and I hit him, and I hit him, and I hit him, and I hit him. At some point or another, I hear Malik in my ear say, do you want to do this, or is this what you want to do? And at that same time, I stopped and I saw, I saw a mess. I saw, it was a lot of, it was a lot of mess. And I had heard his head hit the concrete a couple of times because I was straddling him. I could feel it through my knees. I could feel it. And, but then I stopped and I'm just over this cat and I go from, Rage to crying. <laughs> and Malik looked at me like, hey, that's no crying. You whooping somebody's ass. No crying. Stop that. <laughs> I um I got up and I just I just walked away. I was and at the same time, I felt my mother. My mother was is a very always was about, you know, forgiveness and spirituality and blah, blah. And I had locked her out, man. You feel me? And all of a sudden, she was there. Not really saying anything, but she was just there. And uh, so I got up, and I'm walking away. And I'm just like, the fuck? What, 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 what has happened? There's a mess on the sidewalk. And Malik is walking behind me. He said, what you want me to do with him? I had no answer. I I was I was me then. So me didn't have no answer to what whatever happened to old boy. I don't I'm not really sure of who that was at the time. I went back home. I walked in the house. Mrs is on the uh, on the couch and she's looking out for me. She's wondering what the hell is going on. I walk in the house. I go straight to my basement and wash my hands. And she's at the top of the basement. The, the basement didn't have any, no light down the stairs and wooden stairs. So she wouldn't follow me. Normally, she would follow me if I wasn't answering her. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? But she wouldn't go down into the basement, so I knew I was safe. So she was just at the top of the stairs. What's going on? I come upstairs. I say, hey, man, you don't want to know. Don't ask me no questions. You don't want to know. And she was quiet. She let it go. That night, I was upset, and I couldn't. I couldn't go to bed. I didn't want to lay down. So I fell asleep on the couch. She went upstairs and went to sleep. 
she woke me up early that, that next morning and um when I woke up, she had this look on her face, you know, like I'm like, okay, man, I don't feel like going through this. I told you yesterday, told you last night, don't go through this. She said, baby, I um I said, no, nah, man, look, I told you last night, I don't want to talk about this. She went, baby, we went back and forth once or twice. She said, baby, the police outside. I go outside and on the porch is the same guy that I had made the police report to some three and a half, four months earlier. Same dude. He says, how you doing, Mr. Arnett? I said, I'm good. He says, uh, do you know? And he gave me a name. I said, no. Nah. He said, you sure? I said, yeah. He said his name again. I said, I don't know him. He said, he's from North Carolina. The one thing that I had ascertained is that I saw his truck once, and we saw his license plate, and we got the first three, two numbers and one digit off his license plate. All I knew is that this person was driving a truck from North Carolina. He said, he's from North Carolina. You sure you don't know him? I said, no, I don't know him. He looked in my house, and my house had boxes because I was getting ready to leave. I was literally getting ready to leave. I left D.C. and moved to Memphis April 6th, 1996. And this was maybe that Monday or Tuesday beforehand, he said. So you're moving? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm moving back to Memphis. He said, oh, okay, that's good. And he left. I left that Saturday, moved to Memphis, and a few weeks later I had to call back to my neighbor to make sure I had a, I left a car at the house, and I was waiting on one of my friends to come and pick it up, and I just wanted to make sure he picked it up. So I called my neighbor, and I asked her, I was like, hey, did uh, Tony come by and pick up that car? She said, yeah, he came by and picked it up. Police was about here too. And uh, I said, oh, yeah? She said, yeah, yeah, police came by. They asked me where you was. I told them you moved back to Nashville. I said, oh, okay. What did they say? He just smiled and said that was good. <laughs> a couple of years later, I, uh, three years later, as a matter of fact, I went back to D.C. in 99 to marry to, for the wedding of my uh, sister-in-law. My younger sister-in-law was getting married. And um, I went by my old church and I saw Brother Malik. This guy was a loner. This guy didn't hang with everybody else. He was there. He was amongst us, but he never, nobody could say, that's my boy. We, you know. And I saw him at the church, and I hugged him for a real long time. This is Josh Campbell in Memphis, Tennessee, and you are listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on November 4th, 2016 at America, and the theme for the night was the dark side. This story is told by Mitchell Grimm and is titled Agent of Change. So I just got really nervous. Um, But I'll just start. Way back in May of 2002, I woke up one morning and I didn't actually wake up. I had to be shaken awake. And and that was really bizarre because it had been like over over two years at that point since I had slept through a night. Um... 
and they had to shake me awake because it was count time. Um, I was in a 10 by 10 foot cell with four other men in the high security prison in Chihuahua, Mexico. And count time means everyone needs to be standing up out in the hall so that they can, they can see that you're not dead in your bed. Um, and to not be standing on your feet at count time was to be interfering with the count. So that, that was like grounds for some, some little shittiness, uh, some kind of petty punishment could be forthcoming or, or not. Um, but I was in prison in Mexico because I had been um, a member of the Juarez drug cartel and I'd been caught in Mexico and sentenced to 10 years for transporting marijuana. Um, and I was about two years into it, two and a half years into it at that time. And and it sounds horrible, and it is horrible, but it's it's not the horrible that that people associate with. Oh, it's a Mexican prison and 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 craziness, and it and it is all of that stuff, and it's not any of that stuff, and and I don't have the time. You don't have the time for me to tell you what all of the stuff is. Um, but I was part of this big organization going into this whole thing, and that organization existed out on the street and it also existed inside the prison. And we had, we being the cartel had what's called there, the plaza and, and the plaza means you have control of the drug market. Um, just like there's, there's a plaza at the center of a, any town in Mexico and that's where everything happens so metaphorically, if you control the plaza, you control the town. So we had the plaza, and when I got there, um, I had my little piece of that, which meant that I had the drug market for my dormitory. And I was the guy that, that um, in in U.S. parlance, I, I was the shot caller. Um. So I hadn't slept a whole night in a long time because usually when I went to bed, I had a couple thousand dollars worth of drugs in my cell with me and whatever cash I hadn't been able to turn in before the, before they locked everything down. Um, and people waking me up in the middle of the night. We had these little runners, these uh, other inmates that worked for the guards. We called them the, the peines. And, and peine is the Spanish word for comb. Um, so a peine is somebody who would comb your hair. It means like a, like a, an ass kisser. Um, so the peines were the guys that stayed outside their cells, and they ran the errands for the guards so that the guards didn't have to get up and do anything. So the peines would come to my cell and be like, hey, Lopez downstairs wants to know, can you front him like three, three packs of Coke or somebody needs so many hits of heroin? Can you do it? Or here's the cash or will you front it? Or um, so I'd been doing that for a couple of years. And the plaza is a concession. And that, that concession is granted by the institution. And, 
and we would think here in the U.S. that, okay, I'm telling you this crazy story about how the, the, the crazy drug business works in a Mexican prison. Um, it's the same in the U.S. prison, too. It's just on a different scale. Um, Mexican, it's, it's on, like, Hollywood scale. Um, but that concession is, is an agreement that gets renegotiated from time to time. And that negotiation had taken place and my group was, we were out, we, we had lost in the, in the, in the bidding for keeping that plaza. And so the head of security for the state prison system he was he was our head of security at the prison where i was but he was like the head of security for the whole state system um his name is comandante elmer chavaria and and i'll just refer to him now as the comandante um which is how i would refer to him if i were talking to him today too um but uh the comandante came to see me and and he said, Grim, um, you know, you guys aren't going to have the plaza anymore. And what's going to happen is everyone in your group is going to try to hang on to it. And you're going to fight this change. And the new guys are going to be the new guys anyway. And you're going to lose that fight. And what's going to happen is everybody that's resisting this change is going to get rounded up and you're going to get sent to one of the maximum security prisons, which is like, I didn't want to be where I was, but I definitely did not want to be there. Um, and he said, I'm here to, to offer you a choice. And that, that choice is you can, you can fight like, you want to fight right now because I know what's happening or you can trust me and not fight. And I'm going to make sure that you're all right. And I said, well, how, how long do I have to make up my mind? And he said, I'm going to see you tomorrow. So I had to think about it and I thought about it for, it, it didn't take me a day to, to come to a decision. Um, I went to see my bosses and I took the drugs that I still had in my inventory and I took the money that I had and I said, I want out and here's the drugs and here's the amount of money that I think is your money. And this is the amount of money that's left. And I think it's my money. What do you guys think? And, and they were cool. I was, I was, I was, frankly, I was shocked. Um, these guys were like, okay, you know, you, you're out, but, but you got to know that you're out means you're out. Like you get no, you got nothing coming from now on. We're not, we're not going to do anything to you, but you got no help coming. And I was like, okay, you know, I, I, that's what I'm going to do. And as the comandante predicted, um, there, there was an uprising. 
Um, and as he predicted, everyone else was scooped up in the, in a matter of the big roundup happened oh two and a half or three weeks later. But but everybody got scooped up and they all got put on a bus down to Mexico City, um, and and no one that I know of ever heard from them again. Um, and that really was the beginning of me turning my life around. Um, I was in prison for, for, for being a criminal, but, but I liked being a criminal. Um, before I got caught and even to, to some point after I got caught, my life was like, like living in a movie. Like sometimes I would just, just look at something that was going on and be like, this is some crazy shit that I'm doing. And, and I'm getting paid an obscene amount of money to do it. And it's so freaking fun. And get up in the morning and be like, how many people get up in the morning and are like super fired up to go to work? Like, I'm not, I'm not that way now. Like going to work sucks, but going to work used to be really fucking fun. Um, but, but that, that life can't, you can't sustain that life. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of, of me coming out of that. Um, and so what the commandante did, um, now I didn't, I didn't have an income. I, I had a good income up, up until that point, And now I had no income. And, and a good income to me inside there was a couple hundred dollars a week. Um, that was a really freaking good income for being an inmate in a prison where the guards don't make $600 in a month. Um, but he put me to work washing dishes for the inmate teachers in the school, in the prison. And I was making $4 a week plus food. And that's where I started. Um, and that, you know, things didn't stay there. And I, I did that job and I, and I put my head down and, and humbled myself and worked and got a better job and then a better job. And two years later, I was running the maintenance department for the prison as an employee of the prison with an office and keys to my office. And I was a, a member of the staff. I just didn't go home at night like everyone else did. Um, and all because of the patronage of the comandante. Um, that prison was a crazy place. There was crazy violence, crazy drugs, 90% of the inmate population there, um, which was about 2,500 inmates in a prison designed to hold about 800 inmates. Um, but 90% of that population were heroin addicts and, and they were hitting that shit every day because they had to. Um, 
and because it was there to have. Um, addicts from the street would come in on Sunday. Sunday was visit day, and it's like this big carnival down in the visit area. Um, not like like, hey, you you have a visitor, go see your visitor. On Sunday, everybody went to the visit, whether you had a visitor or not, because there's food there, there's girls there. there. And these junkies would come in from the street because the drugs were better and cheaper in the prison. Like, they, didn't, they weren't visiting anybody. They were just coming to score and get high, and they'd have to clean them out of the bathroom at the end of the visit. That's the kind of place I was in. Um. And all of this under the watch of the Comandante, which which makes him sound like a horrible man, but he wasn't a horrible man. He was managing the situation that there was to manage. He he didn't create that situation, and and that situation hasn't gotten better since then. Um, he was just the guy that had to deal with it. And one of the ways that he dealt with it and kept it from getting worse than it was, because there were worse places in the state even, and the worst place um, was the Juarez Municipal Prison. And the Juarez Prison was controlled by street gangs, not not by a drug cartel, but by the Aztecas and the Mexicas and the Mexican Mafia and you know, like like uh, blood in, blood out, you know, like the Batos Locos. Um, and that place was just this riot factory. And every three to six months, they would riot. And at the end of the riot, they would round up all of the ringleaders of that riot and send them to the prison where I was. And they would all come on a bus and, and they would arrive at, at the reception building, which was where my little office was. And their reception was always a line of guards off each side of the, the ramp off the bus into the reception building. And I don't, did anybody here go to a school where the fraternities and sororities had, we call them kiss-ins where I went to school, where you, you would have a line of all the actives up the walkway to a sorority house and they all had their paddles. And, you know, the pledges would have to pair up guy and girl and like run this gauntlet through the paddles and get paddled going through there. Um, well, it was kind of like that, but with, with, nightsticks and and getting beat not not a tap on the ass but getting beat on the head or anything they could hit coming off these buses um and they would they would beat them senseless and then take them to the maximum security wing of the prison and and they wouldn't be heard from for a long time um but that's what had to happen to keep our prison from being like Juarez because everybody knew if you wanted to run a street gang in the Chihuahua prison, that's what happened to you. So that happening kept everybody else a little bit safer. 
and in one of those receptions, this was about uh, this was about two and a half years after after my come to Jesus meeting with the Comandante. Um, they brought some rioters down from Juarez, and and they gave them this beating off the bus. And that continued into the reception building where my office was, and I happened to be in my office when this happened. And and when the bus would show up, they would lock down the whole compound. So it's like wherever you are when the bus shows up, that's just where you have to be until it's all over. So I was there, and I, I, was, I was the only inmate that was – not one of the new arrivals that was in an area to see what was happening there. Um, but these, they beat these guys coming off the bus, and then they took them one by one into like this ante room where my office was um, and would have four or five guards on them and and just beat them bloody, beat them till they they couldn't move or resist and and some of them would try to fight or resist or protect themselves and some of them would just kind of like stoically take this beating and and I was trying to not see it and be seen to not see it um but couldn't not see it um and I was most impressed by just just splashes of blood on the wall or or when they would drag the last guy off and see the like the scrape mark of the blood where they was where they would drag this guy um and when it was all done one of the guys didn't survive the beating um he had been beaten to death and that signaled a big change for the prison. Um, oh, and, and and as I was as I was watching this, sort of the the cleanup from from this reception, I remember thinking, you know, um, I'm glad those guys volunteered for for that shit to keep stuff the way it is around here. Um, we didn't know yet that somebody had died. Um, he didn't actually die there on the floor. He he died in the the little clinic of the prison. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, that it sucks that that had to happen. However, that's what has to happen, and and so it sucks to be those guys. But but it's good that it happened in my mind. Um. And after after this person died, all of the guards that were on duty that day were arrested, and the comandante was arrested. And it took them a month or two to sort out who's who and who did what. And four of the guards and the comandante wound up being convicted of varying degrees of homicide or manslaughter. Um, and And they also went to the same prison. Um, and that the Chihuahua prison actually had two sort of campuses. There was the high security prison where I spent five and a half years. 
And then the old penitentiary, which is in downtown Chihuahua, is the, the low security facility. And I was there for my last year. And that's where they kept the comandante and, and the other four guards. They, they were in a separate area from the rest of the inmates there. Um, but I did get to see them from time to time. Um, but that's where they were when, when I left, they were all, they were all there in the old penitentiary in Chihuahua. And I was released from the prison in Chihuahua in February of 2007. And then I was extradited to the U S where I got to be resentenced by the U S courts and, and, sentenced to another seven and a half years um, and and did that and came out and uh, came out of prison. Um, I'm straight. Um, <laughs> moved here to Memphis and got to start doing things like this and, and have finally gotten to the point where I was able to go back to Mexico and um, Grace, my my girlfriend, and I went back to Chihuahua just last month to visit my daughter, who is now 20 years old and a sophomore in college. Um, and I hadn't seen her since she was seven years old. Um, but we went there to see her. And most of the time we spent with her, but I also went to see some other friends that had, had really supported me while I was there. And one of them was this old man that I called Don Oscar. And Don Oscar, his youngest son had been one of my cellmates. And even after his son got out, he and his wife, who, who has passed away now, would still come and see me on Sundays and bring me breakfast. Um, but I really wanted to go see Don Oscar and, and say hello and, and say, hey, I, I made it through the whole thing. And, and, and I was able to do that. And coming out of Don Oscar's house, out onto the street, this car is going by. And just as it passes us, slams on the brakes. And there's this shout of, Cubo Michel Tomas Grimm, and which is like, hey, what's up, Mitchell Thomas Grimm? <laughs> and it was the Comandante. And obviously out of prison and is working for the city. And he had just gotten off work. He w- works overnight. He had just gotten off work and, and lives a few blocks away and happened to be driving by right as I'm walking out of this random house. Um, and I said, Comandante, I, I want you to know how sorry I am about the way things happened with you. And I wanted to say thank you for keeping me safe and for helping me as much as you did and as much as you could. And and he gave me an answer much like I would give an answer, so it shouldn't have surprised me at all when he said what I went through saved my life, so don't worry about it. And that's my story.
This is Sean Mosley in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're listening to the Spill It Podcast. This story is from a center stage event held on November 4th, 2016 at America, and the theme for the night was the dark side. This story is told by our very own creative director, Josh Campbell, and the title of the story is The Blind Side. It's hard to, in in Donald Trump's America, to... uh define what the dark side is. But, uh, you know, uh, Donald has made me think about my own actions throughout the years. And, and, uh, and this story, as most stories go, goes back to a Judd Apatow movie. My wife and I were watching the classic Knocked Up at, uh, at the theater and there is a scene in that movie where Seth Rogen is talking to, uh, what's that girl's name? Catherine Heigl. On the phone. And, uh, and I'm ashamed to admit it that I related to this scene, but he is on the phone and all of his buddies are around him as he's talking to her and they are all making various faces and gesticulations and humping various furniture and all of that to embarrass him while he's on the phone. And my wife turned to me and said, that is ridiculous. Guys don't do that. (laughs) And I said, yes, they do. They do do that. And she goes, you don't do that. And I said, and this is where, this is a little locker room talk here, guys. I'm sorry, but this is how it goes. And I said, yes, I do. She goes, well, well, what do you do? I do like a little, like, uh, like a little rodeo thing. I think, like, that's what I would do. And she was like, you are disgusting. I was like, I know, I know. And she goes, well... None of your friends would do that because my wife is friends with all of my friends and she knows them very well. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, they would do that. And she goes, well, I know that Hale would not do that. And Hale was my best friend. And I said, yeah, Hale would do that. And I will tell you, I know what his move would be. It'd be a little... Again, I apologize, guys. You know, a little slap in it. You know, and uh, and she goes, "No, no." I said, "Yes, that's what he would definitely do." And she goes, "I'm going to call him right now." And at the time, my friend was uh, living in in Colorado, and and uh, she called him, and she goes, "We just watched this." Knocking it up. My wife's right back there. This is my this is my wife's impression here. But <laughs> we just watched this knocked up movie, and there was all these guys, and they were doing this thing. You don't do that. He's like, yeah, oh yeah, I'd do that. And then she said, well, what is it that you would do? And he's like, I don't know, maybe a little smack it up, rub it down. I'm not proud of this, guys. I'm not proud of it. 
And uh, she was like, yeah, it's, she's, it's exactly what you said. It's exactly what you said it would, he would do. And I said, yeah, I mean, he's my best friend. I know him. I know exactly what he would do. I met Hell when I was 13 years old. He was 12 years old. We were at camp together. And, uh, you know, when you're at camp, you have these kind of intense relationships where you're just together for like three or four weeks. Like, in like these, I was from Orlando. He was from South Carolina. We were the outsiders at this camp in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we just became friends just because we had no other friends. And, uh, and so then we went on, we went to camp together. We worked together, you know, and, and you just get these intense moments of, where you're just around each other 24 hours a day. You just get to know everything about everything. You know what their position is on locker room talk. You know exactly what they're going to do, right? And so he was my best friend, and I knew him better than I knew anybody else. So in August of this year, I got a phone call. It was from my friend Pat, and he was upset. And he was crying. And he said, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, and for me, what happens at that moment is that when I know that someone's about to give me really bad news, I shut down and I go into this mode of, and I just said to him, calm down and tell me what you have to tell me. And he said, Hale has killed himself. And I said, okay. And so from that point on, for the next two weeks, it was nonstop phone calls from all of our friends that said, why did he do this? Why did he kill himself? You know him the best. And I would say, well, I know he was going through a tough time, but I did not imagine that this was possible. There were times where I had to like hook my phone up to the wall just so I could continue having all the conversations that I had to have with all of these people. Five days after I got that phone call, I got another phone call, and it was from his brother. And he said, I have a backpack his brother was the one that went and got him, picked up his car, got all of his stuff. And amongst his stuff was a backpack that said, To Josh and Santina, my wife. His brother lived in Atlanta. And he said, Well, we're going to have a memorial for him probably in November, but I have this bag for you. And I told his brother, this bag is something that he wanted me to have, so I have to come get it. I can't wait until November. This phone call was in August. I said, I'm going to come now to get it. And his brother said, no, you can't come now. Let's try to figure it out. I don't want you to be here when my wife is here. We haven't told my kids about it and all of that. And so I kept Every day I would call him and say, when can I come? I need this thing that he wanted me to have. And I need to figure it out. Everybody is asking me 
why this thing happened, and I need to know. And so eventually I did. I drove over there. It's about a you know, five-and-a-half, six-hour drive. And I'm a big advocate for the cleansing quality of the long road trip. I think it's very good. You should do it in the middle of the night when it's really dark, when the song Radar Love makes its most impact on you is when you should, when you should drive on those trips. Um, but I had made that trip many times. Hale lived in Atlanta from high school. I was in Murfreesboro. He went to college in Chattanooga. So we had made that trip many times. And so I, I loaded up my iPod full of Hale music. Uh, he was a big pavement fan like the Doors and Pink Floyd and uh, Nirvana. And so the whole way over to Atlanta, I listened to this music, and I tried to figure out, like, what was it? What was it? What what happened? And so then I got to the house. I met with his brother. We sat and talked for about an hour or two, and he gave me the bag. And we were going to have a uh, a memorial service in Nashville the night, uh, that night. So I had to drive from Atlanta to Nashville and I felt like I had to read these things before I got to Nashville because there was going to be all these people at this memorial asking me these questions and I felt like I had to, to do it. And so all this stuff went through my head. Like, where do you do a thing like this? Where do you read your friend's final thoughts. You know, uh, there are many beautiful places between Atlanta and Nashville. There is uh, a place that Hale and I visited many times as campers and later the Fall Creek Falls, which to me is a beautiful state park. There's so many beautiful state parks in East Tennessee. If you haven't been over there, I recommend it. It is an amazing part of, uh, of the country. There's an old family house that is in Beersheba, Tennessee, which is Hale's house that his family has owned since the 1850s, that we've spent many moments together. And I thought, well, I could go to Fall Creek Falls. I could go to Stone Mountain, Georgia, where we watched fireworks together one time. I could go to any of these beautiful places. But then I thought, you know what? I could go to Big Daddy's Fireworks and read it outside. Because Hale loved his fireworks. But then I thought, you know what? I don't ever want, if what's in this bag is bad, I don't want to ever go back to any of these places where I'm going to read this stuff. So where do you go at your darkest moments? You go to rest stops along the the interstate. (laughs) So so I got about uh, 45 minutes outside of Atlanta, and uh, stopped at a rest stop, and I started reading. And I would take out, and when I, when I opened the bag, it said, uh, the top of it said, this will explain some things. There was a note at the top that said that. And uh, and then I looked through it, and I read the first thing. And what it was, was there was no note. There was nothing, but it was journals journals that he had written over 
the last 25 years of all the thoughts that he had and in just scrapbooks. In, in that bag was the invitation to my wedding. And in that bag was the invitation to other friends' weddings. And and uh, so every time I would stop, I would, I would read these things. And, and what I found was that since he was 12 years old, he had had these thoughts of wanting to kill himself. And I didn't know it. I knew him well enough to know what his locker room talk was, and I knew him well enough to to understand all this other stuff about him, but I never knew that. So I got to a spot outside of Chattanooga. So I, I would I would I would go, I would stop at a rest stop. I'd read a journal, and then I would stop and drive a little bit more and then stop and then drive a little bit more. And then I got to a rest stop in Chattanooga. And actually this Chattanooga rest stop is pretty sweet. You guys should check it out. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'll probably never go back there, but it's really nice. It's on top of a lake. It's very pretty actually. And I pulled out a journal and it said it was the earliest journal entry that I could find. And it was from 1996. We were 18 years old. And it said, on one page, it said, going to be a good night. Josh has got some beer. And we're just going to party. And that's, you know, and I'm going to hook up with Paula. You know, Paula. Come on now. Paula? Come on, guys. <laughs> and I was like, ah, that's a nice memory. And then the next page is, is this the day I'm going to do it? And it's just every bit of it. I mean, the, the the narcissistic part of me would love to tell you that there was a lot of entries about me in there, but there weren't really. Like, most of them were like, yeah, Josh is off talking somewhere right now, and I'm just doing my thing. But every one of them was this kind of shadow person that I did not know. And and I just remember and when, when, I, when I read this, and then I went to his memorial service. Everybody kept asking me, what's it say? What's it about? And I just said, you know, not much. Sometimes I, I, I come up with these, like, uh, these final lines to these stories, and some of them were so cheesy, but I, I, this one, it's like sometimes the dark side is a blind spot, you know, and and you just don't ever know, and I never knew. Thank you. Spill It Podcast is a joint production between Spill It Memphis and the OAM Network. For more information, go to spillitmemphis.org and the oamnetwork.com.